So turn in your Bible with me, speaking of winning, over to Luke chapter 17. And we are going to, at least for now, um, hopefully soon we'll come back to our series on healing, because there's still a handful of reasons that I want to include in that series and that I believe are are good for that. However, for now, the Lord has directed me to uh, keep focusing on this particular subject for tonight, where we've been the last two weeks, and that is the subject of faith. You know, faith is uber important, isn't it? Super important. Luke 17, verse 5. And the title of tonight's message, if you're writing notes, is Faith That Overcomes. In verse 5 of chapter 17, the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Well, that's a noble desire, isn't it? To have more faith. To grow in faith. And, you know, Jesus made the statement. He said that all things are possible if you have some faith. All things are possible to him who believes. And in another place, he said, you know, if two or three people will agree as touching any matter. I mean, that's like a really big big swath, isn't it? As touching any matter, it will be done for them. So we are going to look at this and you know, you can have all of us are at, there's probably no two of us in here that are at the exactly same level of faith. You know, we're all in different places in our, in our walk with the Lord. We've come to different places. And you can have great faith. You can have little faith. You can have no faith. You can have all kinds of different levels of faith that are talked about in the Word. And here, <clears throat> if you have no faith, here's the good news. You can, have, you can be full of faith before this night is over. You can grow in faith before you leave this building tonight. You can go from little faith to greater faith. It might not be the greatest faith that you've ever seen or, or walked in yourself, but it, you will still grow in it and be stronger in it. So Jesus' response to this question of theirs, increase our faith, it makes this statement in verse 6, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that's a pretty tiny little seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. So a little bit of faith can have a tremendous difference. Tiny, tiny, tiny mustard seed sized faith. And we often think, you know, I mean, a mustard seed is so small that from 10 feet away, you're not going to see it, right? It's really, really tiny. So we're not talking about a major level of faith to be able to move mulberry trees. To be able to move things that have been rooted and stuck for a long time. Are you listening to me? A mulberry tree has spent some time there. In fact, it's become established there. Its roots go down and it, it, it's firm. The wind doesn't blow it over. It's there. But yet a little bit of faith, seed faith, and that tree can be uprooted and move to where you tell it to go. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 4, and we're going to look at verse 8. Paul says, 
He says, we are pressured or troubled, some translations say, but the word means pressure. Have you ever been in a pressured situation where, man, it felt like there was pressure all around you and if you were a tire, you might pop? (laughs) You ever feel like, I don't know if I can take any more pressure, right? I'm sure we've all felt like that from time to time and we've experienced different levels of pressure. And some, what's, what's funny is when you deal with pressure, um, what to one person is a vast amount of pressure, the next person is like, man, I wish I had that little pressure, right? And this is, it's this way all through life. And so pressure or trouble is not the gauge on whether or not you're going to have victory. All right, let's see what he says. We are pressured in every way or on every side, but not distressed, not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. They're not hopeless. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Now listen, pressure or trouble does not require distress. Pressure does not require you to be distressed. No amount of pressure has the ability to make you be distressed. We become distressed because of what's going on up here between the two ears. We become distressed because what we say and tell ourselves the pressure means. I'll give you an example. If you're out on the highway, some people find it stressful to be in a traffic jam. You've got places to go, things to do. Traffic is at a standstill. Now, does traffic jams cause stress? Some say yes, some say no. Do traffic jams cause stress? That's the right answer. For some people, yes. For some people, no. And and truth is, is really traffic jams don't cause stress for anybody. Is it possible to sit in a traffic jam and not care? Yeah. So if traffic jams caused stress, everyone that sat in a traffic jam would experience the exact same thing. Stress. So there's something else going on, right? When you're sitting in the traffic jam, we begin to tell ourselves stories. I'm going to be late. I already started out late. (laughs) Now I'm going to be really late. They're going to be upset at me. And if I don't hurry up and get there, I might lose my job. And boy, you can just feel the pressure beginning to rise. Because we're telling ourselves things they may or may not be true. But we are filtering it through a set of lens that sunglasses that we're wearing. You know, have you ever put on like blue sunglasses? Everything looks blue. It doesn't matter if it's blue or not. It looks blue. Hold up a white sheet of paper and ask the person what color is this? And they might say it's blue. <laughs> because that's the lens they're seeing things through. Well, you could give them orange sunglasses and suddenly everything is bright and rosy, or not rosy, that'd be rose-colored sunglasses, but bright and sunshiny, right? Everything is orange or yellow, depending on the lens you're looking through. So, when we look through the lens of stress or distress at our circumstances, and we start telling ourselves that, well, in this set of circumstances, this is the outcome, we create stress for ourselves. Now, how far do I push that one? I'll start where I, where I started. Trouble or pressure does not require distress on your part. 
Being perplexed does not require you to be in despair. It's possible to be, man, that's perplexing. Without being in despair or feeling hopeless about it. How about persecution? Persecution doesn't mean you're abandoned. It doesn't mean God has left you or forsaken you or somehow abandoned you. Being knocked down doesn't mean you're out. Get up. The fight is still on. There's still a chance to win this thing. I mean, how many, if you've watched any movies at all, you know that's how the plot usually goes. It's right when things seem to be at its worst and the guy is knocked down and taken more blows than is humanly possible is when the hero of the story gets up and wins. Right? Because they got up. Even though they were knocked down, one translation says knocked down but not knocked out. Would anyone here like to sign up for a class on how to lose? Okay, we'll skip that class and I'll just give it to you in a sentence. Alright? How to lose. Allow trouble or pressure to distress you. To put you in stress. That is how you lose. Let me say it a different way. Despair and hopelessness is the ticket that'll take you to Louisville. Lost. Whatever. Right? (laughs) Despair and hopelessness. So if you find yourself in a position of, I feel hopeless, well, at least it's just a feeling. doesn't mean that it's truth. Feelings are fickle, aren't they? They come and go with the weather. Sun's shining. Wow, it's great. Oh, now it's cloudy. Hmm. I kind of feel bummed now. Our feelings are just just as fickle as all get out, right? So that doesn't determine truth. That doesn't determine what's going to be our reality. So we get to choose and we get to stay in hope and stay in faith. Let's go down to verse 13 now. He He had just made these statements. In verse 13 he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith in accordance with what is written, I now he's quoting. He's quoting um, from Psalms 116, verse 10. He says, I believed, therefore I spoke. It doesn't say, I spoke so that I might believe. Coming from a word of faith circle like we do, we sometimes fall into that, right? Trying to build faith by our words. But here he's saying, I spoke because I believed. Because I believed, this is what came out of my mouth, and that's what faith is. The difference. Well, let's just keep reading here. As I believed, therefore I spoke. We also, he's saying us, even though they're in all this trouble, even though they're perplexed, even though they're persecuted, even though they're struck down, he says, we also believe and therefore speak. One of the ways that you release your faith is with your mouth. You speak. You say. If you say the wrong thing, if you're sitting in a traffic jam and you're believing God to reach somewhere on time, would it be better to begin to use your mouth to create an opening? Lord, I know that You said that all things are possible to him who believes. So Lord, I just ask You to open up a way. Make a way for me to reach there on time. Or, is that going to be more effective? Or what if we just sit there, oh man, this is horrible. Man, come on! Get out of the way! We're never going to make it. Oh man, probably going to lose my job. 
Again and again in Scripture, Jesus, or not Jesus, the Lord said to people, and Jesus even said it, that according to what you've said, it will be done. According to what you've said. So, for us to be in faith, our faith is you can hear it. You can hear it. Let's say it this way. Um, the Scripture, I'll just read, read it to you in, in several translations. Romans 4.17, if you're taking notes. It says, as it is written, I have, he's talking about Abraham. He said, I've made you the father of many nations. Abraham acted in faith when he stood in the presence of God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't yet exist. God calls things... Want, uh, some translations say it this way, He calls things that be not as though they were. As though they are. He calls things into existence out of nothing. It doesn't say that He denies the problem that is before Him and says the problem doesn't exist. No, instead He creates with what He says. Because God's words are power-filled. Would anyone disagree with that? His words are full of power. So if we say His words, guess what we're doing? Putting His words against our problem. Alright, so he goes here, he says, uh, um, he calls things into existence that don't yet exist. The TS 2009 translation says it this way, He, Elohim, God, who gives life to the dead. Are there any dead things in your, in your life that need life? Speak to them. Tell them to wake up. Speak to him. I, w- I was meeting with a pastor the other day, and he was telling. We were talking about a mutual acquaintance that we have up at the airport, and he works behind the counter. And he is a uh, he's a pastor, and he works up there for United. And um, one day he's up there at the gate, and um, a flight gets canceled. Now that's the least favorite thing for for a gate attendant is when the flight gets canceled, not delayed, but straight canceled. Because now all those people sitting at the gate are irritated and they have picked up pressure and stress and all these things, right? And you get to deal with them. And so he is standing there at the gate and he is rebooking everyone and trying to get it all sorted out. There's either 60 or 70 people there. And uh, in the middle of this, his phone rings and it's someone from his church. And and she is a hairstylist. And she has someone sitting in her chair at the, at the hair salon that she, she calls and she says, Pastor, I'm, I'm working on this lady's hair and she's died. She's like unconscious. Like, I think she's dead. And so, Pastor, he says, well, uh, put the phone up to her ear. And she's like, what? The phone? I mean, like dead people don't talk on phones, right? And so she's like, what? She goes, yeah, hold the, he says, hold the phone up to her ear. And so, so she does, she holds the phone up, okay, up to her ear. And he goes, in the name of Jesus, wake up. And she begins to, and she goes, ah, she's waking up, she's waking up, she's not talking, but she's moving and she's awake. And he goes, put the phone back to her ear. So he puts the phone back and he starts speaking um, clarity of mind and these different things to her and she becomes, I mean, she finished her hair appointment, all right? <clears throat> now, <laughs> I'll add this into the story just for fun. He didn't do that standing at the gate. 
at the counter. He, he said to the people standing there in line, he said, give me just one minute, I'll be right back. And he stepped out on the bridge and shut the door and dealt with it out there. And then he came in and continued carrying on with what he was doing. I say all of that to say, faith speaks. Faith will speak to the problem. It doesn't matter if it's big or small. If you believe in your heart what the Lord said about you, and you begin to confess that about your situation, you're going to see a difference come immediately. I had started to read in the TS 2009 version on this, and it says, He who gives life to the dead and calls that which does not exist as existing. Let me... Let me uh, say it a different way. When God said light be, when He created the world, did light exist? Not yet. So from nothing, light was now injected into everything. And He continued in creation this way. Calling things into existence that hadn't yet existed. And so has God's power now finished (laughs) back at creation? Like He spent all this power and he now needs to recharge for the next thousands of years. No. There's an unlimited supply of the power of God available into our universe. And the same power that brings causes planets and stars to be formed is the same power that brings someone to life in the middle of a hair appointment. Right? Alright, let's look at verse 18 if you're still in 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 18, he, he makes this statement. He says, we do not focus. Everyone say focus. focus. We do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If the devil can keep you in the realm of the seen, he'll defeat you continually. If he can constantly get you over into the realm of reasoning based on what you see. Reasoning based on what you see. You will begin to feel despair. Hopelessness. Oh, it's not happening. We're doomed. Our country is over. I mean, do I need to get more clear? When you look at the natural and you allow the enemy to get your focus on what you see, rather than on the unseen realm. Because when you're looking into the unseen realm, the wind and the waves aren't going to move you. But when you're looking into the natural realm, suddenly you'll find yourself pushed all over the place trying to avoid the wind and the waves and and brace yourself for what's coming and all of it coming from a natural, humanistic action, right? If the devil can keep you in the realm of reasoning, he will continually defeat you. But, if you keep the devil in the realm of faith, you will continually defeat him. If you'll keep him in the realm of faith, say, well, pastor, how do I do that? Well, okay, let's take healing, for example. If you are um, have symptoms in your body, now, the enemy wants you to look at those symptoms. But see, you know that the Word says, by His stripes I'm healed. You know that the Word says, whatsoever I ask in His name, He'll give to me. You know that the Word says that, you know, if to him that believes, all things are possible. You know that the Word says that He gives the desires of your heart to you. 
You know all these things, so therefore, and you believe them, right? But the enemy wants you to look at the symptom. You already prayed and you asked, you asked the Lord to touch your body. You declared the Word over your body. You, you said, I receive the healing power of God. By His stripes, I am healed. And the enemy wants you to continue looking at the symptom. But faith does something different. It goes into the realm of, well, faith. <laughs> into the realm of the unseen. The realm of the unseen. Later, um, I didn't read it, but in chapter 5, verse 7, it says we walk by faith, not by sight. So as soon as you're over here in the realm of the unseen, what are you looking at? You're looking at what He said. And He said that you're healed. So therefore, I'm healed. So I now see myself as healed and whole. And meanwhile, over here you got all these symptoms going on in your body and the enemy's going and your flesh is going, hey, look at me, I'm not healed yet. It didn't work. But you're over here in faith going, oh, thank you, Lord, for healing me. Thank you, Lord, that you're working in and through me. That every cell in my body is submitted to you and your power is flowing in me. And I rise up stronger and stronger. I go to bed. I rest. I get up. I'm just full of life and health. And even though I'm 40 years old, I act like a 20-year-old. Right? So you speak from the unseen realm. Not what you can see. But the moment I go from that to... Oh man, I do kind of feel sick. Wow, that hurts. All of a sudden, my focus has shifted. Faith has left and I'll be defeated. So keep the devil in the realm of faith. And man, he won't want to tangle with you. You know, that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. They have this tree and he gets them into the realm of sight and into the realm of reasoning. You know, the serpent showed up and he's like, look at this tree. He says, did God say? And so they begin to question. And then it says they, that she looked at the tree and she saw that it was good to look at and good to eat and, and began to reason. And he begins to reason. The devil begins to reason with her and says, that, he didn't tell you the whole truth. You'll become like him is why he doesn't want you to eat this. And she looks at it and she goes, yeah, that must be right because look, this tree looks really good. The fruit looks amazing. I mean, it looks like better than the apples we've been eating over there. And so, in the sight realm and in the reason realm and got completely out of faith in the will of God. Let's go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. I feel like I'm starting really slow. However... It's the right speed. That's what the Lord says. First John 5. I remember um, back in about 2009 or 10, I was working and uh, I was pastoring the church there in Colorado where we lived and I was, I was working over in Aspen and we would drive over the mountain passes frequently. We, I was helping uh, in a hardwood flooring company there. And our tires on our Mercury Mountaineers, an SUV that we had, all-wheel drive, great for the snow, but our tires had become really, really bald. Now, it's summer, so, you know, it, it's all right. We have some time before winter comes, and, and we begin to have snow in the road. And I looked at that, and I knew that, but, but we had no money. We were in a really, really difficult time. We were, had just come in through a process of losing pretty much everything we owned because of the financial squeeze and claps that had happened a year or two earlier. And so we were 
really, really short on funds, right? Short enough that like we would pour water into the milk and things like that. Well, um, I did not. I knew I didn't have the money that it was going to take to put new tires on this vehicle, right? I mean, it's going to cost you know six, seven, eight hundred dollars at that time, and that was might as well have been ninety thousand dollars for me, because we were believing for a carton of eggs and uh, not $700 for tires. So I began to talk to the Lord about it. And I said, Lord, you said that you would meet all our needs. Is that a promise that He gave? I mean, that was a promise in regards to finances. He said, I'll meet all your needs. And um, so I started returning the Lord's promises to Him. And I said, I recognize that you said that you'd meet all our needs. I know that Psalms 23 says that the Lord is my shepherd. I will not lack. And I took all kinds of verses that talk about faith and that I can ask the Lord for something and He'll give it to me. And I said, Lord, these tires are wore out and I need more tires. I either need tires or I need money to buy tires. So I'm asking You for these tires. And then in the Word it says that if you believe you have received, past tense, you will have what you've asked for. That's what Jesus said to His disciples. So I ask for the tires. So now what I'm, what's left to do? Thank Him for the tires. I thank you, Lord, for these new tires. I'm not looking in the natural realm, am I? Thank you, Lord, for these new tires on this vehicle. They're amazing. They're awesome. Man, they're good in snow. These are great tires. And a week or two goes by, and a couple weeks go by, and you know, every couple of days when I'm walking out to the vehicle, I mean, it's summer. The need has not met my face yet, if you will, right? Because there's no snow on the road. So every couple of times when I go out and get the car, I, I notice the tires, how bald they're getting as I walk up to the vehicle. So I thank the Lord again for the new tires that He's given to me. And then I get in and drive away and bald tires. And this goes on. And after a couple of months, now we're coming into the fall. Now the tires, because we're putting a lot of miles on, out west things aren't like here. Everything's far apart. You drive for you know 40 miles everywhere you go. And so... I've been putting a lot of miles on this vehicle. The tires, the tread has now disappeared on one of them. That's like a racing slick, right? <laughs> and um, I begin to talk to the Lord about these tires each time I get into the vehicle. Because I know winter's coming. Winter's coming. I've got to get some tires on this thing. And so I'd get into the vehicle. Thank you, Lord, for these new tires. Thank you, Father, that you've, you've met all my needs. See, what am I doing? I'm looking at the unseen realm, believing that I have received from the Lord that which I've asked of Him, and I'm thanking Him for it. Time passes, and um, now we're right on the beginning of winter, at the edge of winter. I haven't had any snow yet. And um, there's wires showing on this tire. And it's getting bad. And... My faith has started to shift from believing for new tires to, well, I shouldn't say it shifted from it. I'll say it this way. So I've got my faith over here. Thank you for the new tires. I'm also using my faith over here. Lord, don't let these tires pop. <laughs> don't let these things blow up on me. They need to get me there and, and without killing somebody, right? And so I began to have to use more of my faith there than over on this side. But the last things I've said to him are, thank you for these tires. Thank you for these new tires that you've given to me. Well, it was at about that time that uh, we had someone at our place and 
um, hadn't talked to this individual about the need for tires. Uh, maybe he saw, I don't know. Maybe he looked at our car and was like, man, those clowns there, they need tires. <laughs> and, um, but, but he, uh, he hands me a whole wad of cash and he goes, hey, go put some new tires on your vehicle. I hadn't told him about our need. See, the Lord has the ability to tell people. You don't have to. Now, if somebody asks you, right? Someone asks you about a need, be honest. Say, I'm believing for this, right? So anyhow, hands me this huge stack of cash. And I thought, I mean, it was huge for me. And um, $601, if I remember right. And so I stopped at the tire shop on the way to work the next day. Said, I need new tires. So they priced them. I said, Look, here's all I have to spend. So, whatever we can make work, I have $600. And so they figured and they typed and they punched and they called around. Oh, yeah, this other shop has these certain tires and we can get them here this afternoon. Come back, we'll put on the tires. So we came back and the bill was like $600. I had $1 left over. And that's when I knew that coffee matters to the Lord, too. <laughs> So, 1 John, okay, faith speaks. Faith speaks. Faith looks at the promise. Faith believes it receives. Instead of, faith is not in the reason realm, not in the natural seeing realm. In 1 John 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. And everyone who loves the parent also loves his child. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey His commands. For this is what love for God is to keep His commands. Now, His commands are not a burden because whatever has been born of God overcomes or conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world or overcome the world, our faith. Your faith is what brings victory to you. Not just because God is good. Not just because He is able. Because if you don't believe it, it's not going to do you any good at all. It's your faith that brings that to the scene. It's your faith of looking into the unseen realm and saying, yeah, Lord, I see it. And I believe Your promise. And have that childlike faith. And just receive, Lord, that's mine. I lay hold of it. I lay claim to it. It belongs to me. See, faith is a spirit. It's a spirit. The, the spirit of faith is the spirit of victory. You can't be in faith and have a spirit of defeat about you. That doesn't go together. I'll read two verses to you in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us who gives us the defeat? Victory. Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Leads us in triumph. So if victory is assured, if triumph is promised, that will take care of a whole lot of stress in your life, won't it? When the pressure comes, why would I get into distress over this? The Lord's got it handled. 
The Lord has it figured out. When we first moved here, go with me over to uh, Hebrews 11. When we first moved to Pennsylvania, <clears throat> we came at the direction of the Lord and we had nothing to our name besides a trailer full of housing furniture and clothes, right? And no job, and so we're believing God for everything. We're believing God for the next breath of air, you know. And um, in this process, somebody had said, well, you can stay at, well, it was across the street in the campground over here. And those little, we stayed in one of those little cottages and uh, for a month, and then we changed from across the street to a different cottage and stayed there for two or three months. And while we were staying there, now they were, they were like, no, you can live here and you know, there's no rent, just pay the utilities and, and that's how they do things here. So that was a real blessing to us. Now, the trouble was is other people were scheduled to come and enjoy these cottages as well. So we needed to get out. But yet we didn't have the funds to go rent a place yet. We hadn't found a place that worked for us. And so we're praying and we're asking the Lord for you said you meet our needs, so I thank you that we have a place to stay. I thank you that we're not homeless, we're not on the street. Thank you, Father, that you meet all our needs. And there was multiple times there, that, that season, those couple of months that we were in the cottage, that the landlord said, um, so these other people are coming in this weekend, so I need you to, to be out. They're going to be staying there for like a month or two weeks, or whatever it was. So I need you to be out by this time, you know, in two days or whatever. Okay. So we would, uh, we would say, Lord, <laughs> help! <laughs> we need a place to go. Thank you, Lord. You know, your word says you, you've set my feet in a spacious place, and I believe that. And we'd thank Him for meeting our needs. Well, the day would come that we'd have to get out, and we would pack all our things up, and be ready, load whatever we could and be ready to go, but we hadn't left yet because we weren't down to the minute we were supposed to be out yet. You know, and uh, the devil will play with your mind in a situation like that. Like what, you're going to sleep in the car? You know, what, what, what's happening? I mean, you tithe, you give to the Lord, you've been sowing. Why isn't it working? So you got to stay out of the realm of reasoning. You have to just stay on the promise and say, you know, I do know this. I don't know that. I do know this. And it says that He meets my needs according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's not by my riches, not by my might, but it's by His unending, aboundless, superabounding riches in glory. So there's enough there for me. And I think it was at least three times this happened that we were told to get out at a certain time. At least twice. Twice, okay. Um, that we were told to get out and it came down to like the minutes before and we got a phone call and said, I don't know why those people just decided not to come. You can stay. And so we were like, thank you, Jesus. You know, He supplies. He meets our needs. And so we'd stay again for the next, you know, several weeks, month, until the next time it happened. And eventually we ended up getting out of there and into a house and plenty of houses since then. Hebrews 11, are you there? I remember Pastor Dale saying this. He said, the Lord, I don't know, maybe he got it from somebody else. He says, the Lord is, uh, how was this, always on time. He's never late, but he's seldom early. Hebrews 11. 
Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. This word reality is the word uh, confidence or foundation. Faith is the foundation of what you hoped for, what you're, what you're expecting. It's the proof of what you cannot see. See, if you could see it in the natural, you would no longer need to have faith for it. You wouldn't have to believe for it. There would be no reason to. You already have it. Faith is always for what you cannot see. Faith is always for that which has not materially presented itself yet. Right? Whether it be deliverance or finances or what, it's always from what is in the realm of the unseen. Verse 2, For by it our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen, what is seen has been made from things that are not seen. Everything exists from things that didn't, we could not see. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By this he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. Even though he is dead, he still speaks through this. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken away. So by faith he was taken away so that he did not experience death. And he was not found because God took him away. You can find that account in, in Genesis chapter 5. Did you know e Enoch apparently believed God for this? And that, that's some pretty big faith, isn't it? Great faith. It says he walked with God. You say, well, I want to have faith. Well, then walk with God. What does that look like? Talk with Him. Talk with Him. Know what He's saying. Read the Word. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God is what Romans 10 says. Faith comes when you hear the Word. Faith rises up for the unseen on the inside of you. When you get a hold of the promise, it's only then that you now have the ability to believe that that promise could be true for you. Before you know about the promise, you wouldn't even know enough to believe for it, right? Didn't know that was possible. But now that I know... And he said he would do it. It is mine. So Enoch, by faith, was taken away so that he did not experience death and he was not to be found because God took him away. You know, he walked with God and, and the more time you spend with the Lord, the more you think like he thinks and faith rises up in you. And that's what happened to him. Listen to this next line. It says, For prior to his transformation, so before that happened, before he was taken away, before that, he was approved having pleased God. Before the transformation took place, he pleased God. And what was it about him that pleased God? It was faith. Faith. In fact, the next verse explains and expounds on it. He says, without faith it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to Him must believe that He exists and rewards you for drawing near to Him. I mean, that's the revised version. Rewards those who earnestly seek Him. You know, we cannot fall into the trap, because many of us have, that we, the devil would take you over into the reason realm and say, yeah, that promise God doesn't apply to you because you've blown it here and here. You were the one who opened the door for that. And so therefore, um, 
you're exempt from that promise. You just have to put up with it because you know the law of sowing and reaping. You know, there is a supernatural cancellation of the law of sowing and reaping that takes place under the blood of Jesus. And if you really want to look at it, Jesus already suffered for that sin, went to hell for that sin. So you don't need to. So the whole law of sowing and reaping and having to reap where you sowed already is dealt with. So now you get to reap because there's still a reaping needs to be done for what He had sowed. And that belongs to you. So you qualify for the promise. I don't care if you've blown it. If you've blown it and if you've sinned and if you got off, get back to the Lord. Repent to Him. Thank Him for the blood of Jesus that washes away all sin and that He gives you His righteousness and stand there confident before the Father that He would give it to you just like He would give it to Jesus. And you don't have to wait until you have walked out your purpose and calling in life. And you don't have to wait until I've had a certain level of accomplishments and miracles that happen in your life before He's pleased with you. The Word says that when Jesus went down and was baptized in the river, and suddenly a dove came down on Him, the Holy Spirit in the form of what looked like a dove. And a voice from heaven, God the Father Himself, spoke and said, This is My beloved Son, in whom I'll eventually be pleased once He starts doing miracles and preaching and teaching. Now, he hadn't done one miracle yet. He hadn't taught one sermon yet. None of that. And the Lord said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Before all of that came. So we need to stop canceling the promises of God in our own head with that kind of thinking and realize that the finished work at the cross makes me worthy because it's His work, not my own, to receive from Him with an open heaven. Let's go back to Romans 4. See, you can be in faith without seeing it in the natural realm yet. Because you're looking into the unseen. I quoted from Romans 4 a little while ago about calling things that don't exist as those they exist. That's what God does. And the Word says that we are to be imitators of God. So we should do the same thing. Call things into existence. Call deliverance right into existence. Call health. Call wealth. Call life. Call freedom. Call liberty. Right? For our country, for our brothers and sisters, for everything. Romans 4, verse 9. Talking about Abraham, a man of faith. He's called the father of faith. He had been given some promises. And in verse 9 it says this, Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? The, the blessing he had just talked about. Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised. The answer is but uncircumcised. That's when he was considered to be in faith when he had not yet even carried out the command of the Lord to be circumcised. And remember, God made covenant with Abraham and Abraham's part of this thing was is that he was supposed to be circumcised. Him and all the males in his household. And so, this was to be a reminder of them, a blood covenant reminder to them that they belonged to the Lord. 
But before they did it, it was credited to him as having done it. As righteousness. As faith. He was in faith before they got there. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. He became the father of the circumcised, not only to those who are circumcised, but also to those who follow in the footsteps of the faith, our father Abraham, while still uncircumcised. How could Abraham be in faith when he hadn't done it yet? Is faith of the head or of the heart? Faith is always of the heart. For with the heart one believes, resulting in salvation. And with the mouth they confess that Jesus is Lord. So with Abraham, he believed in his heart. And because he believed is why he took action next. And why he followed through on the instruction that the Lord gave to him. Someone say, I am a believer. I walk by faith, not by sight. I am a believer. You know, the devil's jumping and run when you talk like that. <laughs> I am a believer. That's right. Let's go to Judges chapter 6. And. Using in faith, faith as a case study and a faith of, there's many things. We could teach sermon after sermon here, but I don't intend to stay here long. I would like to read through here and comment a little bit as we go. In Judges, this is the story of Gideon. How many remember the, the story of Gideon and his mighty men? Well, here in verse 1, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so if, if maybe you don't know Bible history, um, the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt, and God leads them out by Moses, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, across the desert, to Canaan land. They didn't obey the Lord and go in like they were supposed to. They got into mental reasoning and did not go by what is unseen, but they went by what was seen. All the giants in the land said, we can't do it. They talked against what the Lord had promised that He could do for them. And so the Lord said, alright, you guys aren't going in after all. If that's how it's going to be, you're going to get what you said. So He said, go back out to the desert, to the wilderness. You're going to be out there 40 years until all of you clowns have died off and the younger ones will go in and take the land. So that's what happened, 40 years. Well, eventually Joshua gets raised up. He leads that younger crowd. By now, they're, they, you know, it said everyone from 20 years old and younger are the ones that lived. So now they're older, right? 40 years went by. And they come to the land of Canaan. And they had to, by faith, cross the Jordan. And by faith, they got to Jericho. And they marched around Jericho by faith. And they obeyed the Word of the Lord. And by faith, they believed and they took action. I mean, what kind of people go out and blow trumpets at stone walls? expecting something to happen. But they did because that's what the Lord said. So Jericho falls and they win. And, and then from there they go on throughout the whole land. Right? Well, through the process of time, you know, Joshua dies, passes away, and now we're in the book of Judges. And a whole series of judges um, led them and judged them and were their leaders during this period of time before we get to the period where they had kings. Okay, so that's where we are in this story, kind of right here in the middle of it. 
It says, The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years. And they opposed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. When the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the eastern peoples came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed all the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle, they must have had a lot of cattle, and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to waste it. So Israel became poverty stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Now, the Midianites were Abraham's descendants from Abraham's son Midian. Okay, And then the Amalekites, they were descendants from Esau's. And then the eastern peoples were called Ishmaelites. And so all of these people here are descendants of Abraham. Well, then you got the children of Israel. They're descendants of Abraham, but with the covenant promise. And so this horrible situation breaks out where they're in starvation. They're hiding in the hills and in the caves and strongholds and can no longer be in their houses and on their farms. They have to be off hiding in the woods. We think things are bad in our nation, but nowhere's close to that, right? There are nations like this though. In verse 6, so Israel became poverty stricken. Not just like it's a small thing, but like majorly. They're, they're stricken with it. Because of Midian and, Is, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. When the Israelites cried out to Him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. How about you and I today? Can we cry out to the Lord and the Lord send His Word to us? We cry out to the Lord and He deliver us. We cry out to the Lord and He send us Gideons that will rise up in our government. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. This is what the prophet came and told them. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I delivered you from the power of Egypt and from the power of all those who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. Now this is major, a major wealth transfer that had taken place for them. In Psalms 105 verse 37 it says that they left with silver and gold. And there wasn't a feeble person among them. So there was like a major thing that had happened. And then the Lord said, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Ammonites whose land you live in, but you did not obey me. He's explaining to them why they are in the situation they're in. What did Paul say? He said, we're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. Well, you know, the word says that all who would live godly will suffer persecution. That's New Testament for you. All who would live godly will suffer persecution. So we ought to be suffering persecution. Now, because we live in a land that has a constitution based upon Scriptures and principles from the Bible, we can also have protections in place for that. Because this nation was an experiment, right? An experiment that hadn't been accomplished before. Verse 11, The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, 
which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine vat in order to hide it from the Midianites. See, it's not grape season. They're not going to go look at the vineyards and the wine vats to see if there's any grapes ready. So they're hiding the wheat over there. Verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now Gideon is hiding with his wheat. Does that sound very mighty warrior-ish to you? Not much. Do you think this angel is a man of faith? Do you think angels believe what God said? Yeah, that's called faith. That's what that is. So angels, because they carry out the word of the Lord, and at His assignment, they go and do things and know that the power of God backs their every move as long as they're obeying Him. So angels are operating in faith. They expect to accomplish what the Lord sent them to do. So here He shows up and He says, The Lord is with you. Jehovah is with you. You mighty warrior. Calling things that be not as though they were. Calling things into existence that don't yet exist. Are you seeing this? Calling something that's in the unseen realm into the, the known realm. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if Jehovah is with us, why has all of this happened? And where are all His wonders that our Father told us about? Fathers told us about. They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. You know, the Lord has not abandoned us in the United States of America. He's not discarded us. We just have a fight on our hands. It's time for a scrap. We might be knocked down, but we're not knocked out. Back to our feet. Verse 14, the Lord turned him, or the angel turned to him and said, Go, there's more direction, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the power of Midian. Am I not sending you? Go in the strength you have. Don't wait until you've trained and done all these things. He says, go with what you have. What do you have right now? The problem that you're facing in life, the mountain you're up against, the mulberry tree that needs moved, whatever it be, or in this nation, us collectively, what we're facing, what do we have at our disposal? Well, we've got promises. We've got the Word that says He makes us more than victorious. He leads us in triumph. We've got promises that say that we can use our words and create things and cause things to come to pass. We have promises that He's going to meet our needs. We have promises that we have commission. Commission to go into the whole world to bring the Gospel. We have commission to command devils to leave. We have commission to lay hands on sick people and boom, they get better. Amen. So, we have all kinds of things that are disposal. Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the power of Midian. Am I not sending you? Remember in 1 John 5 where we read that it's our faith that overcomes the world, but he said that the commands of God are not a burden. Why are the commands of God not a burden? 
Because the command of God, the Word of God, carries within it His power. And so if He tells you to do the impossible, it's because He has the power there for you to do it. That's why it's not a burden. Otherwise, it'd be a big burden. Verse 15, He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. What's he looking at? Seen or unseen? The scene. He's reasoning. And as long as he stays there, he's going to stay hiding out there in the bushes. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. Oh, so if we asked Gideon, could you face one guy? Oh, okay. Well, that's how it'll be. One guy. So he's getting a picture on the inside of him. He's building something on the inside. He spoke life to him. He said, man, you're a mighty man of valor. Um, I've commissioned you to do this. You're going to take him as though they're just one man. Verse 17, then he said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring a gift and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a half bushel of flour. So it must have taken some time. He says he placed, so he prepared a meal, he baked bread, and he, he did all this stuff. So this guy's patient, but he wants to do it right. He wants to give him a real nice spread here. He placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat with the unleavened bread. Put it on this stone. Pour the broth on it. He did so. The angel of the Lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire came up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Oh no! Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, see, he was beginning to get afraid. He's like, oh no. The Lord says, peace to you. Don't be afraid for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. It is in Ophrah of the Asbarites until today. On that very night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old. Then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So go cut down their sacred pole and use it as sacrifice wood to the Lord. So Gideon took ten of his male servants. See, he wasn't a poor man. I mean, they might have been in poverty, but he has ten servants and like a lot of stuff going on. So he takes ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. So is he dealing with fear? Yeah, but he's figuring a way through it, right? He's going to still act in faith. When the men of the city got up in the morning, they found Baal's altar torn down, the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull offered up on the altar that had been built. They said to each other, who did this? 
After they made a thorough investigation, they said, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Then the men of the city said to Joash, this would be Gideon's dad, bring out your son. He must die because he tore down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash, I mean, it was Joash's altar and idol and all that to begin with. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead Baal's case for him? Would you save him? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead his own case because someone tore down his altar. That day, Gideon's father called him Jerubal, saying, let Baal plead his case with him because he tore down his altar. Now all the Midianites and Amalekites and Odemites, those are the people of the east, gathered together, crossed over the Jordan, and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. The Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon. So there's an anointing on his life. There's a calling on his life. The Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon and he blew the ram's horn and the Abzerites rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh who rallied behind him. He also sent messengers through Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali who also came to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, so now he's got this army. Gideon says to God, if you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you said, I will put a fleece of wool here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by my strength, as you said. And that's what happened. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung dew out of it, filling a bowl of water. But all the ground is dry. But then I guess Gideon goes, but maybe someone went out and poured water on that thing while I was sleeping. Maybe I'd better do it in reverse this time. So then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. That night God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry and dew was all over the ground. Now this is under the Old Covenant. They were covenant people of the Lord. They did not have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of them like you and I do today. And so he's asking for a sign from the Lord. And the Lord granted his request, answered him very, very clearly. But you and I, we live under the new covenant, a better covenant. We're not, we don't do fleeces. Uh, I mean, I, I remember listening to Kenneth Hagin and he says those who use fleeces get fleeced. Listen, you should not use a fleece. I'm going to be very bold about this. Do not use fleeces. Romans 8 tells us the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God, not led by fleeces. So don't use fleeces. See, what happens is when you use a fleece, um, sure, sometimes you might have gotten results with it, but the trouble is is you're asking for a, something to prove that this is what God wants you to do in the seen realm. The same place that the enemy can manipulate and cause things to happen too, to deceive you. To come as an angel of light. But you know what he cannot What He cannot do? He can't live on the inside of you like the Holy Spirit. 
and give you peace and confirmation in here. We are led by the Spirit of God. And that comes from on the inside. So he can't replicate that one. So he'll try to bring enough pressure out here on the, on the seen realm to get you out of the unseen realm on the inside. So we don't ask for fleece like Gideon did, but Gideon did ask for a fleece under the Old Covenant and, and the Lord answered him. Um, chapter 7, Jerubal, that is Gideon, and everyone who was with him got up early, camped beside the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them below the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you, or else Israel might brag, I did it myself. Now, announce in the presence of the people, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the people turned back, but 10,000 remained. So he had an army of 32,000 people. And now, two-thirds of his army just left. Thanks, Lord. Do you think he's still in faith? He's working through some things. But he continues to push forward into obedience because he believes what the Lord said to him. So the next thing that happens is verse 4, Then the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many people. Uh, he probably looked out of his tent door and said, Don't look like too many to me, Lord. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. And the number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths were 300 men. I suppose they're drinking like this. And all the rest of the people knelt and I guess drank straight from the stream. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you. But everyone else is to go home. So Gideon, great man of faith that he is, sent all the Israelites to their tents but kept the 300 who took the people's provisions and their trumpets. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Like, the anointing of the Lord is on Gideon. So he blows the trumpet. And 32,000 people show up. They are drawn to the anointing. They are drawn to what the Lord is going to do in the nation. 32,000 people show up. And the Lord goes, no. All those that are scared, send those home. Because you know, fear just limits the Lord like crazy. Limits what He can do for you. So He said, let's get that out of, it, out of here. So those that are afraid, go. So He does that. And the Lord says, I want you to know it's me. I want you to know that it's me and not your own strength. Let's, let's do this other thing. And so now he's only got 300 guys left. That night, the Lord said to him, Get up and go into the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go to the camp, go with Pura, your servant. You know, the Lord is very patient and very gracious, isn't He? And if you are dealing with fear and you're doing your best to work through it, you're speaking to it as a spirit, commanding it to leave you, you know, the Lord's going to help you. And in this case, he recognized that Gideon is, is walking and stepping out in faith and hey, take this guy with you. I don't know, maybe this guy was, I don't know, 
He, he, maybe he was like a black belt in something, I don't know. Take him with you. At any rate, this guy made Gideon feel better, right? Maybe he was also a man of God. But he takes his servant. He says, this is what the Lord says, listen to what they say, and then you will be strengthened to go to the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the, the Qudamites had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts, and their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about a dream. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midian camp, struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. His friend answered, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to Israel's camp and said, Get up, for the Lord has handed the Midian camp over to you. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, gave each to groups of 100, gave each of the men a trumpet in one hand and an empty picture with a torch inside it in the other hand. Watch me, he said, and do the same. When I come to the outposts of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me his group of 100 men, blow our trumpets. You are also to blow your trumpets all around the camp. So they're going to stretch out around the camp. So suddenly the Midianites are going to wake up and hear trumpets surrounding them. There must be a vast army out there. And then what's going to happen? Well, they're going to blow their trumpets all around the camp. Then you will say, the sword of the Lord and Gideon! Gideon and the hundred men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew their trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. And now their torches are blazing, right? Everyone can see them. They're not in the pitcher anymore. The three companies blew their trumpets and shattered their pitchers. There was a clattering and light shining suddenly all around this place with a trumpet blowing and echoing and going all over the place. Man, these people, they thought that they were just done in. The three companies blew their trumpets and shattered their pictures and they held their torches in their left hands, their trumpets in their right hands and shouted, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. Each Israelite took his position around the camp and the entire Midianite army fled and cried out as they ran. When Gideon's men blew their 300 trumpets, the Lord set the swords of each man in the army against each other. There's pandemonium, there's panic, it's dark, they can't see who's enemy, who's not. Running in the dark, run into someone, who's this guy? Cut his head off. We don't know. But this is what's going on. So they're not even having to fight yet. They're just watching. They fled to Bethshida in the direction of Zerah, as far as the border of Abimelah, near Tabath. Then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim with this message, come down to intercept the Midianites and take control of the watercourses ahead of them as far as Beth Bara in the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they took control of the watercourses as far as Beth Bara in the Jordan. They captured Oreb and Zeb, the two princes of Midian. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. 
while they were pursuing the Midianites. They brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. The men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us, not calling us when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they argued with him violently. They are upset. We want part of this. How many of you want part of the victory? Part of the victory that's coming here to this nation. Part of the victory that is coming to the church in the earth. Part of the revival that is here in the earth. You know, it's time that we stop waiting on God to move and we move on His behalf. And we need to have this same attitude that says, don't go to battle without us. We're in it too. We want a part of this. I like Gideon's response. So he said to them, what have I done now compared to you? Is not the gleaning of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar? God handed over to you Oreb and Zeb, the two princes of Midian. What was I able to do compared to you? You guys, you got the prize. And so then they're like, uh, oh, when he said this, their anger against him subsided. And they're like, yeah, I guess you're right. We did. But they did get a part of it, even though he hadn't called them to join him initially. If you look on down in chapter 8, down at verse like uh, 11, uh, what, verse 10, now, now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkuk. With them was their army of about 15,000 men who were all those left of the entire army of the Kedemites. Those who had been killed were 120,000 warriors. 120,000 warriors. And then in verse 12, it says that he captured the kings and, and routed the entire army. How is this possible? Because one person was willing to believe what the Lord said and to step out and allow the Lord to do what He said He would do. What if Gideon went by sight? Right? He would have stopped so many times over. Again and again and again, he would have stopped. But because he went by what was unseen, the promise of you will defeat them as one man. So it doesn't matter if I have 30,000 or 300 or 10. The victory is still his. I mean, after all, 300 against one is pretty good odds, isn't it? Who wouldn't take those odds? You're going to take him as one man. 300 to one. See, that's the kind of odds that happen when the Lord joins your side. When you join the Lord's side, maybe let's get it in the right order. All right, stand with me. Wake up a little bit. Worship team, you can come. So I'm going to ask you several things. Consider it. What are you dealing with in your life? What are you up against? That's a mulberry tree that needs rooted up, yanked out, and thrown in the sea. Find scripture verses that apply to that for you in your life speak and believe let me no no no. let me say different believe and therefore speak believe and therefore speak to those those problems and those issues and now corporately this is the other thing we want to do how many are willing to believe for revival to break forth in the church in the world but in our nation revival. You know, if we will just put our faith to this and believe the Lord. He said the latter rain is going to be greater than the early rain. So we live in latter times. So all we have to do is say, Father, I believe that. 
Someone say, I believe it, Lord. I believe it. Father, we are yours to use to work with you to defeat the enemy in the land and in the world. I thank you, Lord, that you stretch forth your hand to heal as we lay hands on people. That as we declare your word into situations that un, uh, that hard places are broken up. That the ground becomes fertile, ready for your word, for your seed, Lord. We ask you for boldness in us, Lord, and we determine we're going to be bold. We're going to stretch out our hand. We're going to declare the goodness of God. We're going to break the bondage that has come against people all around us. We bring deliverance. Someone say, I bring deliverance everywhere I go. Peace upon the places that I go. You know, in order for us to walk into this latter day harvest that the Lord has for us, we have to believe for it. We have to be convinced by the Word and by the promise that it belongs to us. We have to want it more than we want to go back to pre-COVID behavior. Come on, I mean, we want to see the stores open up. We want to see this nation going back to how it was, but really we need to want something more than that. We need to want something that happened a hundred years ago at Azuzu Street. We need to want it to go back like it was in the book of Acts where the Lord was very, very visible because of the signs and wonders that were being done to confirm His Word. How badly do we want it? Are we willing to say, you know what, Lord? This is going to be a matter of prayer for me. I'm going to believe you for it. I'm going to ask you to show me what I should do this week. Father, I, I ask you, Lord, to put it in our hearts how to work with you in the most effective way. Look at your neighbor and say, Hello, mighty warrior of God. Hello, mighty warrior of God. You guys are a mighty army. A mighty army. Nothing shall be impossible to them who believe. And you believe. Amen. ever ridden on an airplane, you know that it's not uncommon for the pilot to come on the intercom and say, we're expecting some turbulence up ahead. The reason he does that is so that the expectations of those riding, they would know what to expect. 
that they would know that, okay, we're going to feel some shaking, but it's going to be all right. And it doesn't catch them by surprise. You know, today I was praying, and I was asked the Lord if He had anything to say to me. And this is what He said to me. He said, I'm shaking the foundations. And that was all He said. He said, I'm shaking the foundation." He's saying there's turbulence up ahead. Larry Hostetter had a word on four days ago. And I'm going to read part of it to you. I just received it tonight during worship here. It says, My children, such a shaking, such a shaking is coming. A shaking. Awake, 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 awake. Get awake, my children, for it's time of a move of God. It is a time like you've never seen before. It's a time that will shake people up, move people out to do all and fulfill all that I want to do in this earth to wake people up, to bring souls into my kingdom, to touch lives, to bring a revelation of the power of the living God. It's a time of awakening to the trueness and the realness that I am a God who is alive. I am a God who is holy. I am a God who wants to show the world who I am and what I've done for them. It's a time for bringing in the sheaves. It's a time for shaking of this world like it's never been shaken before. It's a time of moving by my spirit. It's a time that will make the enemy shake in fear. It's a time when hearts will be changed. It's a time when the love of Jesus Christ will be poured out in such a majestic, mighty, holy way. It's a time of my judgment. It's a time of my mercy. It's a time to make a decision. It's a time to seek my face. For I know all things. For I have created this earth. My son Jesus shall rule and reign. Because it is in the word. He shall rule in justice. He shall rule in love and compassion for people. My will will be accomplished. My will, my word will be fulfilled. People will learn to know me in ways they have never known me before. Because I am who I said I am. I have done what I said I have done. And I will do what I said I will do. Because I am who I am. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. You know, in Hebrews it says that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. But that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if you're on the rock, you don't have to be concerned about the turbulence. You don't have to allow the stress of turbulence to put a pressure on you that is, gets you out of faith. So let the shaking come. I said earlier that we want to go back to like it was in Acts. We want to go back to, but really, we don't want to go back to something. We want to go forward into that latter rain. We want to go forward into the greater things of this last harvest that the Lord has prepared for the earth, right? Someone say amen. 
Father, I thank you that you would just accomplish all that you've said. We know you will. We believe it. And Father, we stand here as your hands and feet. Lord, that your kingdom not be shaken, and even though everything around us shakes. Lord, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. We are here to do your bidding. We are here to bring honor and glory to you. We are here to see your kingdom expand and grow in all the earth. And someone say, Amen. Well, one way we love God is by loving on one another. So love on each other as you go. We have a time of fellowship downstairs. Everyone is invited. Good evening and welcome to Church of the Word International. We're so glad everybody's here tonight. Thank you so much for showing up. Amen. I'd like to encourage you in our worship tonight from Revelations 5. It's so fabulous. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Who is, who is this speaking of? Everybody? Jesus, yes. Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's a lot. Amen. And you're one of those. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and they worshiped him who lives forever and ever. This is worship in heaven. That's it. It just speaks worship. Well, we don't have to wait till we get up there, do we? We can worship right now, can't we? So let's all stand up together and let's worship the one who was slain and took upon your and my sin that we can live in the presence of our Father forever and ever and ever. Jesus, it's all about Ooh. you. We are alive because of you, Jesus. All honor, all glory, all power goes to you. We thank you. We adore you and love you and worship you. Jesus, it's all about you. 
Say that. Just say that. Jesus, it's all about you. Hallelujah. Well, turn to your neighbor. One way we love God is by loving one another. And tell him how wonderful Jesus is to you. Well, good evening, everyone. Good to be with you all again. We're going to prepare to return the tithe to the Lord this evening. All right. Well, some class participation. Who would like, keep your Bibles closed, to get up and quote 2 Corinthians 9-7? No looking. Anyone want to quote it? I know it's familiar, so we're going to do it this way. All right, who can give me the gist? Okay, any, any, anyone else give me the gist of 2 Corinthians 9-7? You know where I'm going. All right, fine, turn to 2 Corinthians 9-7. says this, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. So I want to bring out that the heart of the giver determines if the gift is acceptable or not. See, it's not just enough to give. It's, It's not enough just to give. It's not enough just to write a check. It's not enough just to serve on a service team or go through the motions of worship. It's not enough just to give the gift. You have to have the right heart. You, got, see, you see this? See, it says, not this way, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver because our motives matter. And honestly, this is true for any area of giving. You know, parents, how many of you are blessed if, you, if your child goes to do, unload the dishwasher or something, they fling open the lid and they yank out the rack and all the dishes clatter and they scowl and, oh, well, they're doing the dishwasher. <laughs> but are you blessed? <laughs> Not really. So, the only motive that pleases God is love, right? First Corinthians 13, what does that say? If you give all that you have, you know, even give your body to be burned, go and, I mean, that's, that's giving pretty deeply, isn't it? You know, giving yourself up for torture. But if you don't have love, if it's not from this kind of heart, it doesn't profit you anything. Well, says God loves a cheerful giver. Well, why be cheerful? Let's read the next verse. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. That's having everything you need in everything. So that covers all of life. Everything you need in everything at all times. Now here's the purpose. So that you may abound in every good work. So we can be cheerful because we love God, because we trust him, because he is a good God. I mean, he he cares for us. He provides for us. He is for us. So we have faith that he'll keep his word. We have faith that he's abundant, that he will do what he says he would do. And, And then it's just easy to be cheerful, just having the right perspective. All right, so we want to return the tithe with the right heart. And do it cheerfully as unto the Lord. Amen? All right, let's pray over it. Father, we are so grateful to you tonight that we can depend on you, 
that you are ever faithful, and you do not violate your covenant. That, that covenant of tithe is always there, and so we trust you, and we just thank you for being a good provider. And I ask you to bless these tithes and bless these people. In the name of Jesus, amen. And the ushers can pass the baskets, and the people will give unto the Lord and not to man. Okay, so tomorrow night we have the youth and young adults impact at the Schumann home. Is that still on, by the way, even if it snows? Is there? We don't know. Maybe. Okay. That's, it's on. If, you're, uh, <laughs> if it varies from that, I'm sure they'll let you all know. Uh, the ladies' breakfast is coming up February 13th, so that's next Saturday. If you have not signed up, please do sign up. Um, we set a place for each person. So if your name's on the list, which I just told Karen before the service, I better check and make sure mine's on the list because I'm not sure. <laughs> so if your name's on the list, there will be a place for you. If it's not on the list, um, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> also, we are taking donations for a white elephant table. So new or slightly used, you know, gently used items. If um, you have something that you have in your heart to give, please see Kelly or Karen about that. All right, I believe that's all. Pastor, are you ready to come bless the people? Well, good evening. It's a great night to be here with all of you. Karen. Okay. Okay. Meet at City Gate in the morning at 11:30. Okay. And um, put your snowshoes on. To address warmly if you're coming out and a part of the City Gate outreach. Want to uh, point your direction or point your attention, if uh, if I may, to this book right here. We have been studying this in our home groups, and it has not exactly the most exciting of titles, the doctrine of lesser magistrates, but the content is amazing. And um, if you're in one of our home groups, you've now made it through lessons one, two, three, four, five, six. And um, ready for seven and eight. And jump into, in, in the next two lessons, we'll get into the, uh, my favorite section in the book as far as case studies go. An amazing case study. So uh, don't miss the next couple of sessions if you've been part of a home group. And if you're not part of it, then join by all means. You know, there are several things that happen at our home groups. One of them is, is, we discuss and, and uh, learn from the Word of God and from what the Lord is telling and saying to us. So we build each other up in that way. We pray for each other. We um, build relationships. I can say, you know, firsthand of all the people that are attending our home group, um, our relationship with them personally is stronger than it was before the home groups. And so that was one of the things that we wanted to set in motion with the home groups was that um, you would build relationships with each other because that's what Christianity is all about, relationship, isn't it? it is. And um, we're not on an island by ourselves, but we're doing life together and we're going to win together. 